0: The Ma'ala, Psalms of Ascent. We're now in part two of the Psalms of Ascent. We've covered the first, oh, six of them, I guess it was, Psalm 120 through 125. We'll pick up in Psalm 126 tonight. So if you're not already there, you can turn in your Bible. Psalms of Ascent. They're also called pilgrim psalms. These psalms that accompanied the worshipper on the journey up to Jerusalem. Great songs to sing. In fact, they've, they've been called the Psalter within the Psalter because these 15 Psalms are, are so unique in and of themselves in the way that they cling together and in the way that they take you along, along a spiritual journey, if not a physical one. But what's interesting, I ran across this, the Jewish Mishnah, which is the uh, oldest codified book of Jewish oral tradition, all written down <laughs> and put together in writing. The Mishnah teaches that uh, the psalms of ascent, it calls them the psalms of the steps. And it teaches that there were 15 steps leading up to the temple that the Levites would would climb as they went up to the temple and each one of those steps, 15 psalms of ascent, 15 steps, so they would take a step and stop and sing a psalm of ascent. And they would take another step and and stop and sing the next song and then a third step and a fourth. And we walked through, again, six of those steps last week that the the Levites would have sung one at a time. And so their pilgrim psalms for the pilgrim going up to Jerusalem, their Levitical songs for the Levites singing on their way up to the temple itself. Spurgeon wrote this, he said, "...those who delight to spiritualize everything, find here the ascents of the soul, or language fitted to describe the rising of the heart from the deepest grief to the highest delight." And so there there are many possible applications here for the Psalms of Ascent. But among all of these applications, be it pilgrim or priest or personal, these Psalms are about going up. They're about the journey upward. Now again, last week we started in Psalm 120. Psalm 120 begins in a dark place, in the contentious place of the world, of the sojourn. That the pilgrim in that place recognizes a place and wants nothing more than to go up. And so it serves almost as a motivation of sorts to get out of the daily life and head up to Jerusalem, up to a higher place, up to the rock that is higher than I, Psalm 120. And then Psalm 121, we see the worshiper lifting up his eyes to the mountains surrounding but they're not mountains that are hopeful or helpful. He lifts up his eyes to mountains that are intimidating as he sits there in that basin, in that valley. And these overshadowing mountains are huge, and so he lifts his eyes up, but he lifts them beyond the mountains of intimidation up to the Maker of heaven and earth, the One who made the mountains, and to whom He calls for His help. Not the mountains, but, but the Lord. Now Psalm 122, which we looked at more closely Sunday, speaks of the gladness of going. Just be glad to go up. And it also speaks of worshipers, Jews and Gentiles alike, praying for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 123 We saw that as the psalm of the servant who's keeping watch. The servant watching for the return of the Master. For the Jew, that would be the servant watching for the return of Messiah. For you and I, it's watching for the return of our Jesus, looking for Him to be gracious, even as we long to go up when He calls us home. Psalm 124, David declares that if it had not been for the Lord, they wouldn't have made it up at all. And so again, even the ability to go up is something that comes from the Lord Himself. In Psalm 125, the mountains of Jerusalem, the mountains of the Lord, come into view. the psalmist says those who trust the Lord are like Mount Zion, immovable and strong. And then the psalmist goes on to compare the Lord Himself to the rest of the mountains that surround Jerusalem and encase Jerusalem, saying that the Lord surrounds His people in just the same way. Six steps up, and tonight we step on to the seventh step, Psalm 126. And Psalm 126 is a beautiful memorial psalm, if not a flashback. Sung here in the middle of the Psalms of Ascent, you've arrived, you're there, you're in Jerusalem. You've seen the mountains of the Lord, and now as you begin to ascend to the temple, Psalm 126 is a reminder, a beautiful look back to the generation who first returned to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Verse 1. When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. We were like those who dream. And he says it was surreal. It was, it was so amazing. It was almost not reality to stand there and to see the city again. To, to see Zion. To see Israel. To think that after 70 years of captivity, we're back. And this is what he's He's writing what he's saying. We were like those who dream. Ezra tells us that from Babylon, just under 50,000 Jewish people returned in the first wave. 50,000 may sound like a lot. It's not much. It's a paltry number compared to those who went into captivity. But that small number of exiles who returned from Babylonian captivity came back home. Some had never been there before. Some born and raised in Babylon, could be 60, 70 years old nearly, and have never seen the land of their forefathers. Others remembered, barely remembered. Some like Daniel, who was probably 17, 18 years old when he was taken into captivity, remembered the land of their birth. Can you imagine for a moment what it would have been like to go back? I mean, think about that. Can you imagine coming back home to a house that was destroyed by fire? And the sense of being in that place that you called home for so long and yet the sorrow at how it looked. Or, or coming back to a town deluged by a flood. Those who returned after the hurricane in New Orleans and saw their homes for the first time, washed out and destroyed and saw the carnage in the streets and what that must have felt like. Can you imagine returning to a homeland like Israel that had been decimated by the enemy? what would that have been like? And all the questions that would come along with it, Lord, you said you would be faithful. Lord, you brought us to this land, and then we were carried off. Lord, we're responsible for this very thing. Oh, when they came back, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Now, seven months after the return... It's interesting, they went back to Israel, but it took them seven months to finally gather again in Jerusalem. In fact, it was the prophet Haggai who said, you know, you built cedar for your homes, but my temple lies in ruins. Aren't you going to do something about that? Well, after seven months of settling back in their cities throughout the land, the people were called up, and they came back into Jerusalem. And the first thing they did was set up an altar on Mount Moriah and offered sacrifices. And then they celebrated Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is among the most joyous of all the feasts of Israel. And they celebrated it there in Jerusalem. And finally, they laid the foundation for the second temple. Verse 2 going on says Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with joyful shouting. And then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. You know, even the surrounding enemies looked on this with awe that this people after 70 years have come home. They're back. There must be some power in the hand of their God. Now, you Bible students, you may recall that laughter and shouts of joy were not the only sounds heard from Jerusalem when they returned. When they laid the foundation of the temple. In fact, if if you turn back to the book of Ezra, just a few books back to the left, Ezra chapter 3, we have a... An amazing description of exactly what it was like. Ezra chapter 3 in verse 10. Which tells us when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord. The priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord. According to the directions of King David of Israel. Now David had been long dead. 500 years dead. But his instructions were continually carried out. Verse 11, they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That's what it says in Psalm 126, verse 2. Our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with joyful shouting. Except it says in verse 12 of Ezra chapter 3, Yet. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many others shouted for joy. We were like those in a dream. It was surreal. Those shouting praise and excited and seeing the foundation and and were finally reestablishing our home in, in Israel again. And those who remembered the glory days and the way it was, and how small this foundation was compared to the glory of the temple of Solomon. Now, yeah, the old men wept as they dreamed of the former glories, but Haggai the prophet again prophesied greater days. He said, There will be greater days than the glory days. Don't look back, you look forward. Haggai chapter 2 verse 7 I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts the desire of all nations Jesus Christ making the second temple though it was not as glorious not as beautiful not as profound not as amazing as Solomon's temple was that second temple would house the very person of Jesus Oh, the glory of God filled the first temple, but the person of Jesus Christ would enter the courts of the second temple. And so you can look back at the glory days, or you can look forward to greater days. And the Lord always promises greater days. Greater days. If you ever find yourself looking back, and I do on occasion, looking back to when it was a little easier, uh, when life was not so complicated, when there weren't so many Computers and video games and TVs and media and challenges like that. Back to when it was a little simpler. Do you remember LPs? Is that in anybody's memory? Records, you know? Vinyl! Praise the Lord, God created vinyl! Anyway, I digress. It's always better in the Lord. The future is always better. There are always greater days that will far surpass even the glory days of the past. And we see that with Israel. And though the people came and, and there was weeping and there was also shouts of joy, it was a mixture there like those in a dream. And yet even the nations recognize in verse 2, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, the psalmist writes. And we are glad so as much value as there is looking back, and there is value in looking back, it's in looking back that we're reminded of God's faithfulness. But in looking forward, we find faith. And we speak that language that we've talked so much about that God wants us to learn. Verse 4, Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. The south there, and oftentimes when you see south, it's Negev. It's southern Israel, it's a desert region down there, very dry, very hot, very arid down in the Negev. And the Negev is filled with wadis, those empty river beds that stay empty most of the year, dry and again cracked throughout, and you would look at those and think, Well, I see a riverbed, but I can't even imagine water rushing through here, and yet when the rains come, boom, they flood. Water gushes through those things. Even after long seasons of drought, when a good rain comes to Israel, these dry channels suddenly fill up and there's fl- rushing floods of water. And so that's what he's talking about when he says, Restore our captivity as the streams in the Negev. He doesn't say like the Jordan. He doesn't say like the headwaters up north that are full and flowing, but down in the south, in that dry place. Boy, we were captive, Lord. We were in Babylon and it was dry and hot. and We were thirsty and we were lacking and we were void of you and your presence. But restore us as you would rushing streams even through the Negev itself. And the picture is powerful. Because as we think about our own lives in Christ Jesus, we get dry from time to time and worn out. And so we have a prayer we can pray, the same prayer O oh Lord, restore our captivity as the streams in the Negev. Restore us as You have done it before, Lord, with rushing floods of living water. Jesus said in John 7.37, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. And he who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The word living, both in the Hebrew and the Greek, it implies not just alive, but moving and rushing and flowing. sweet. The water of the Spirit. And what, what a blessing it is as believers in Jesus to be able to tap into His Spirit. Hey, I know His Spirit dwells within us. He's promised that as followers of His. And I know his spirit walks alongside us, the Paracletos in the Greek, the, the one who comes alongside, but he has promised an outpouring of his spirit, a flooding of his spirit, his spirit coming upon us in addition, that we might have him within, have him without and be flooded all over by His spirit. And all we need to do is, his, as his children is asked. And I, I don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the baptisms of the Holy Spirit. Multiple, ongoing. Any time a believer is dry, any time you are running thin, to pray, Lord, would you flood me again with your spirit? And he does, and he will. Like those dry beds in the Negev. Verse five, and this is interesting to me, those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seeds, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Now the interpretation of this is obvious. It's the people of Israel return from captivity, replanting, replenishing the land. Nurturing it back to life as we've seen them do even since 1948. The land comes back to life with the people who truly care about the land. Those people rolling back those boggy swamps up in the Galilee to produce beautiful farmlands that are there today. And so the people came back from Babylon. And there was sorrow. And there were tears. But there would be a reaping with joy. And they would carry around their bags of seed, trying to replant, looking at the land that was wiped out and decimated. But you know, we're going to keep working. Even in our tears, even in the sorrow at this great loss, we're going to keep working in this land. And eventually, the psalmist says, there will be shouts of joy, and you'll bring your sheaves along. Your sheaves, the, the, the fruit of the harvest of all the labor. So the interpretation is, is obvious here. The labor would be hard, the labor would be tearful, but there would be harvest. Now, for us, there's a great threefold application. For those who were one time enemies or captives of the enemy, for those who are in captivity to the enemy, to the devil himself, who are now servants of the kingdom. Note this three things here in these last couple of verses. Number one, sorrow. There will be sorrow. Anybody tell you that when you signed up, when you gave your life to Christ? Hey, there's going to be sorrow, it's part of the deal. He says in verse 5, those who sow in tears. The sowing of the seed is not always joyful. The sowing of the seed is sometimes hard and painful and sorrowful. Paul, at the end of his life, wrote 2 Timothy, sent it on to Timothy, his, his uh, son in the Lord. And in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's going to be sorrow. It's going to be hard, Timothy. He says further on in 2 Timothy 4.5, Be sober in all things, and he says this, Endure hardship. Now why would Paul say that? If hardship wasn't on the way for Timothy. Stand up, Timothy. Do your work, be sober, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Why would he say endure hardship immediately followed by do the work of an evangelist? Because the work of an evangelist often involves hardship. So endure it. Bear up. Be strong. Do you personally endure hardship as a Christian? Now, I'm not talking about as a person. I'm not talking about in your daily life do you have a hard life? Do you have personal struggles? Do you have physical maladies or difficulties? I'm not asking do you have family problems that you got to deal with Uncle Fred who's just an idiot to everybody. I'm not talking about that. i got a hard job. I have a difficult life. I don't have enough money. Any of these things. That's not what I'm asking. Do you endure hardship as an evangelist? Do you endure hardship as a follower of Jesus for being a Christian? Peter said in 1 Peter 2.20, What credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Roughly translated, Peter's saying, if you sin and you get in trouble for it, but you bear up, big deal. (laughs) La-ti-da. He says, but if when you do what is right and you suffer, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So walking out of life, following Jesus, doing what's right, living in righteousness, man, if you're getting attacked for that, praise the Lord. If you find sorrow in the planting, sorrow in evangelism, sorrow in just trying to live for Christ, if that's been hard for you, praise God. And know that there's going to be sorrow there. Life is hard. Big deal. It's hard for everyone. It's hard for the just and the unjust. The just and the unjust get blessed. Followers of Jesus and non-Christians alike have a hard life from time to time. That's just the way it is. But if your life is hard because you are enduring the hardship of ministry, that is a big deal. And that is pleasing even to the Lord. There's going to be sorrow. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. But know this... He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed. That's the second thing to note sorrow and seed. For there is seed, and the servant goes to and fro weeping, carrying his seed bag. There's sorrow, but there's a bag of seed. And if you're carrying this about, well, well, what is the seed? What did Jesus say was the seed? It's the Word of God. Luke chapter 8, verse 11. He couldn't make it any more clear when he says the seed is the Word. And so when we look back and we see this, carrying his bag of seed, oh, there's sorrow in living as an evangelist. But man, you keep that bag of seed nearby. And you keep planting. And you keep sowing. And you keep about the work of an evangelist even when there's sorrow because there's going to be, number three, shouts of joy. Shouts of joy. Before I say anything else about that, if the seed is the Word and you don't know the Word, how can you carry it about? The seed is the Word of God and we're unable to rightly handle this Word. How can we sow from it? The evangelism issue in the church is not so much people not doing it, it's people not having seed. People not being able to toss the seed because they don't have the seed in and of themselves. People who are empty of the Word and so when we're out there talking to friends or family or non-believers, we don't have a Word to give because we're not in the And I don't mean us. We. I actually think you're doing pretty good. <laughs> we're in the Word. We desire to be in the Word and to have the Word flowing in us. But if people are not in the Word, how can they possibly sow the seed? There's going to be sorrow. But we carry the seed that we might shout for joy. Oh, he who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seeds, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. And that's where the old hymn comes from. Bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves. not sheep's; It's sheaves. We shall come rejoicing. Bringing in the sheaves. And what a great song. Maybe we'll sing it Sunday. I don't know. Bringing in the sheaves. The whole idea here is bringing the harvest and that there is a great joy in that. The sheaves are those who have heard the seed of the word. It has been implanted in them. They have obeyed in faith and now they're gathered by Jesus for salvation. Now their lives are bearing fruit. The sheaves. And you get to be part of that. I get to be part of that. I'll tell you, I'm not sure that there is a more energizing or exciting thing in all of Christianity than seeing someone saved who you planted a seed in. I mean, that is an absolute thrill. It's addictive. And God says, you know, I could go about saving everybody without you, but I'd really like you to to share in this. I'd like you to experience it, to be part of it. To, to, to see what this is like. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, Who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? That crown of exaltation. Imagine being surrounded by five, six, seven people who are there because you told them about Jesus. Who are saved because you are the one who planted the seed. What incredible joy there is in that. And so I see this wonderful application here that though there is sorrow, if we're carrying that bag of seed and we're planting the seed of the Word in lives around us, we're going to have shouts of joy. And shouts of joy that you might not even expect. That old song, I forget who wrote it, but thank you um, about those coming to you in heaven and just thanking you for telling them about Jesus and you didn't even know that you were part of their, their whole salvation deal. Like a dream come true. Returning. But you know we're not called to be dreamers. That's not what this is about. The coming of Christ is not a fantasy. It's not a misty misty esoteric thing. We are called to a realistic understanding of this world and of salvation and of Jesus himself. As we understand that, our joy, gang, it's in being wide awake for His coming. Philippians 5.14 says, For this reason it says, Awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now Psalm 127. You might know there is a psalm of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early. It is vain to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You know, for all that practical talk about sorrowful, seed bag carrying evangelism, (laughs) we got to remember that the power to change a life will never come from you, will never come from me. It only comes from the Master Himself, unless the Lord builds the house. And so while he calls us to go, it is by his spirit that anyone is ever saved. It is by the power of God within that someone comes to the Lord at all. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Notice again, it says a song of a sense of Solomon. I probably ought to read a psalm of a sense for Solomon. Because Solomon probably didn't write this, David probably wrote it. It's far more likely that David is the author of this psalm, writing this song for Solomon as an encouragement for his son in the building of the temple. Which you see why it's placed here in the Psalms of Ascents. You're going up the steps now. We're on the steps to the temple itself, singing these songs. And Psalm 127 comes up, a reminder of the prayer or the song of a father for his son who would build this temple that we're going up to so David wrote this, passes it along as an encouragement for his son. In fact, notice this at the end of the second verse. He gives to his beloved sleep. The word beloved there, you might note in the Hebrew, it's a name. In fact, it's a name for one of the daily kids, Jedidiah. Beloved is Jedidiah. There at the end of verse 2. And the first child of David and Bathsheba That was conceived in sin died. But then a second child was born to them. A child, 2 Samuel 12, verse 24, tells us, came in a time of great comfort for Bathsheba and for David. Both David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. He went into her. He lay with her. She gave birth to a son. And he, David, named him Solomon, Shlomo, peace. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet. And he named him Jedediah for the Lord's sake. David's name for his son was Solomon. God's name for David's son was Beloved, my beloved, Jedediah. And so we come to this psalm for the builder of the house of the Lord. And here he gives to his beloved, he gives to Jedediah sleep, he gives rest to Jedediah. And you can see David pinning this for Solomon, saying, Listen, you've got all the plans. We're getting all the stuff together to build this temple, but don't strive over it, son. Don't stress out. Don't worry. Because unless the Lord builds the house, the whole thing's in vain anyway. You know, Unless the Lord keeps watch, no one's going to protect this city. So you rest in Him because He gives Jedediah rest. He gives my son peace and sleep and rest. Now in these first two verses, the word vain is used three times. Three times he uses the word vain. Speaking of the builder, if the builder does it without the Lord, it's in vain. He speaks of the watchman. The watchman watches. It's in vain. He talks about the early risers and the night owls. You know, if you rise up early to work hard, if you go to bed late because you're up working hard and the Lord's not in it, vain, vain, vain. If God's not in it, in other words, you might as well just sleep in. Because it's not going to get you anywhere. But the Lord loves his beloved, and the Lord gives to his beloved. The Lord gives to his beloved sleep. He gives him rest. Let's share this verse this morning, and I grabbed it and threw it in my notes. Isaiah twenty-six, verse twelve. Lord, you will establish peace for us, since you also have performed for us all our works. It's not God helps those who help themselves. God helps the helpless. God helps those who can't help themselves. You have performed for us our work. And Jesus said in that familiar passage, Matthew 6:31, do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. What do we do if the economy tanks? You know what Glenn Beck says? Food storage. Food storage. I was flipping channels, no kidding, flipping channels on the radio and I heard food storage. I'm like, what? And he spent like five minutes talking about the importance in this dying economy and as the world's going down to have food storage, to build up. And and that's, by the way, a big Mormon thing. You know, pack up and prepare. Make sure you've got a a large store. And I'm thinking, yeah, you could do that. Or you could not worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear for clothing. The Gentiles worry about that. But we can seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to us as well. Even in a depression? Yeah. you really believe that, Rick? Yeah. I have believed this more and more every step of the way over the last decade of my life. Just coming to the place of... Yes. He said it. I buy it. And I would far rather be about the kingdom and focus on kingdom things and not worrying about all these other things. Who wants to spend your time worrying about stuff and food? God knows. He knows what the need is. So focus on the kingdom. And He'll take care of the rest. Solomon was exhorted by David that the temple would be built by the Lord. Don't stress over it, don't strive, just let the Lord do the work. And then David goes on, and it's interesting, the rest of this psalm, it kind of comes off like a father who's venting pride for his son. Uh, you know, not overtly, but covertly. He's proud of Solomon, and, and he puts it this way, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so the children of one's youth and how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them? They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. I can hear David in these words saying, "Solomon, I'm like you're an arrow in my quiver, son, and I'm pointing you in the right direction, I'm drawing you back, and going to let you go. And you go the way of the Lord. Let the Lord build the house. Let the Lord watch the city. Let the Lord rise up early and and stay up late. You trust." In the Lord, because son, you're Jedediah to me, you're beloved to me, but you are Jedediah to the Lord. You're his beloved. And so David writing this for Solomon and the people of Israel singing this as they ascend, reminded of Solomon's opportunity, his call to build the temple, and that the Lord was was in that. But there's a greater truth in this psalm. There's something deep and rich here that's greater. And David may have written it with Solomon in mind, but I believe the Lord inspired it with Jedediah in mind. Oh, not Jedediah daily. Which son of David, other than Solomon, was called Jedediah? It was Jesus. Jedediah means beloved. At Jesus' baptism, again at the Transfiguration, the Lord said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my Jedidiah. He is my beloved. This psalm this of ascent, even though written for Solomon, applies to the greater than Solomon, our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, the Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. And he was talking about himself. And truly, I believe we can see in this psalm the greater than Solomon. Now you might say, well, I get the beloved thing, Rick, but isn't the context of this psalm the building of the temple, the house of the Lord? And so isn't the Jedediah the beloved here, the one who's going to be building the house of the Lord? No? Yes? Kind of? Remember, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, they do it in vain. Well, this is the cool thing. Jesus, the beloved, is going to build the house of the Lord. Jesus will... Do you realize this? The millennial temple will be built by Jesus. He will be to the millennial temple what Solomon was to the first temple. He will be the master architect, the master builder. He will be the master overseer. Where in the world do you get that? Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. Say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch... For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Branch, Netzer, in the Hebrew, from where the name Nazareth comes from. Jesus the Netzer, Jesus the Nazarene. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. And thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be, will be between the two offices, that is, priest and king. Jesus will build that millennial temple. And so, this encouragement to Solomon to build the first temple, boy, it just speaks powerfully of the encouragement of Jesus, the Lord, who will build the house and will not build it in vain. He will build that temple in the millennial kingdom. Amazing. So, even as the Jewish people gathered joyfully there at the temple, having ascended with shouts of joy, so the millennial temple will be built in days of worship and joy and peace and thanksgiving unlike any we've ever seen Psalm 128 continuing on The song of a sense Psalm 128 verse 1 How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways When you shall eat of the fruit of the of your hands you will be happy and it will be well with you Your wife will be like or shall be like a fruitful vine within your house your children like olive plants around your table Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Let me sum up this psalm in one sentence. The foundation of family life is the fear of the Lord. The foundation of family life is the fear of the Lord. No doubt, you can imagine, they're on the steps of the temple. They're going up as we ascend, singing these songs of praise. Dad, and he's got his wife there and, and the kids all around him, and he could look down and look around him and think, yes, this is good. This is, this is the way it's supposed to be. I fear the Lord, and I'm blessed with this family. I'm blessed with these little ones. I'm blessed with, with a wonderful wife. I am blessed of the Lord. You know, we have conferences, and we have books, and we have CDs, and DVDs, and methods, and systems, and techniques on effective family life. And you know what the psalmist tells us effective family life is? Fear the Lord. It is that simple. Put the Lord first. I I circled something in the passage, just for me, I don't know if it will apply to you or not, around your table. Now I'm weird, I do this kind of thing. I circled it and then I drew a little picture of a table right beside it. With eight people. Eight little stick people sitting around the table. I have eight people. Cheryl and I and, and, and all of our kids. when we're all there at the same time together. We just this last week, I love Craigslist, we found one of those tall square tables. Have you seen? They were real popular a few years back. I think they've gone out style-wise. I don't care, I think they're cool and we got one and it's now sitting in our dining room and it's square with the leaf in it's perfectly square and has two seats on every side so eight people around this square table and I'm reading the song. we just got it this week and just stuck it in the house your children will be like olive plants around your table and so I texted Cheryl the other day talk to me about the table (laughs) and she's like what about the table I'll tell you when you get home and we sat down and read this verse together and I said I want to do this I want to do this. The family table. You know, I know this sounds old-fashioned. But there's something to the family table that we have lost in America. Families sitting together, having dinner together, talking about life together, talking about the Lord together, opening His Word together, and having times of devotion together. Now, I realize some of you are in a place of life where you don't have kids at home anymore, or some are in a place of life where you don't have kids at home at all. But the family table and the fear of the Lord and, and how that fits and the answer to family strife and struggle and difficulty is that we approach the Lord together. We ascend together as a family. We go up together. Your wife like a fruitful vine, your children like olive plants, around the table. What does that imply? It implies growth. And not just physical growth. It implies spiritual and intellectual and emotional nourishment that grows. Gathering the family in the Word to learn of the Lord. And to pass along the Father's fear of the Lord to the sons and the daughters of the next generation. So that by the time we get down to the last verse, indeed, may you see your children's children. And the implication there is not just may you, may you have great grandkids. The implication is, may you see your children's children ascending to the temple of the Lord just like you are. The family table. There's something something precious there. By the way, Psalm 128 also portrays family dinner in the Millennial Kingdom. In the coming Kingdom. Isaiah 65, verse 21 says, They will build houses and inhabit them. And they will plant vineyards and they will eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit so well, they will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. There's going to be a preciousness about that. I think what, what's old-fashioned in our day and age is going to be cutting edge in the millennial kingdom, and that is the family table. Dinner together and fearing the Lord together as family. Psalm 129, verse 1. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, let Israel now say. Many times they have persecuted me from my youth up, yet they have not prevailed against me. The flowers plowed upon my back, they lengthened their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut in two the cords of the wicked. This psalm, Psalm 128, uh, 129, similar to Psalm 120 and 121 and 124 in this collection, it recognizes the historical persecution of God's people Israel. Even as it, as it begins, many times they have persecuted me. Let Israel now say, pointing out that the Israelites singing this is recognizing we are a persecuted people. We have had a persecuted past they could sing, And the psalm recognizes this, but every trip up to Jerusalem served to remind this persecuted people that they were not forgotten by God. Yes, we're persecuted, and yet, I love this this line into verse 2, yet they have not prevailed against Me. I've been persecuted, but they have not prevailed. The enemy will not prevail. You will have sorrow, as we talked about in evangelism. Sorrow in trying to simply live right in the Lord. But the enemy will not prevail. He cannot prevail against you. God is on your side. But for the people of Israel, I love this verse, Isaiah 49, verse 14. Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. God responds, Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Well, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. That's why Jews today still pray at the Kotel, the western wall. That verse, your walls are continually before me and so the Jewish people look at that western wall all that's left is the retaining wall of the temple mount it's not even a temple wall it's the retaining wall there are original stones that Solomon laid you can go down in the rabbi's tunnel and see those stones underground huge massive stones but it was all the retaining wall for the actual temple complex and yet Jews today go and pray at that wall why? because your walls are continually before me that while the world forgets and while Israel seemed to be non-existent as a people, when they came back, that western wall... And by the way, when they came back in '48, they were not allowed to go near the western wall. Because the Arabs held Jerusalem. But in 1967, June, of the Six-Day War, that miracle, I believe, occurred. As the Jewish people, as the Israeli defense force flooded into Jerusalem and conquered it for the first time... 1800 years, roughly. And they got in there, and they're there at the base of the Western Wall, and then up onto the Temple Mount, and you may remember this story, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin. Solomon Gorin is the rabbi's name. He's a general, so I guess he was General Rabbi Shlomo. General Rabbi gets up there and pulls out a shofar and begins to blow. And you can see ancient pictures of this, pictures from 1967. I guess not that ancient. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for those of you born before, before that. That yeah. would be me too. Wow. You can see the old pictures of the, of the soldiers there and Rabbi Gorn with that shofar blowing the horn and soldiers weeping. Tough. Dirt on their faces, stained now with their tears, weeping there on the Temple Mount, there at the Kotel, the Western Wall, weeping, praising God, shouting hallelujah, because your walls are continually before me. Imagine what that would say to you if you were one of the Jewish people. To come back there and to stand there in that place and say, God has not forgotten us. He still remembers. And here we are, the walls before us. By the way, I, I can't pass this stuff. There's another story i got to tell you about Shlomo. A great story. Rabbi Goran, he, he blew the horn. He's famous for that, but he's famous in Israel for something else. Something even more uh, miraculous. The next morning, he realized they had conquered Jerusalem. The next step was Hebron. Hebron is down to the south of Jerusalem. Hebron is the home of the cave of Machpelah, the cave that Abraham purchased that he and Sarah might be buried there and Isaac and Rebekah were buried there and Jacob and Leah were buried there Rachel was buried in a tomb along the road and so Shlomo knowing this said said to his driver "I, I want to be waked in the morning I want to make sure I'm part of the march on Hebron I want to be there when it happens he woke up the next morning and they left without him he was forgotten and just inadvertently And so he called his driver, hopped in his car, and they hot footed it down to Hebron. And what happened was, they got down to Hebron, and it was quiet. And so, he assumed perhaps the IDF had captured it already, so he had his driver drive right on into the city. And as they drove in, they saw flapping from rooftops and from windows and from building tops, white sheets. Blowing in the wind, total silence. All you could hear was the flapping of those white sheets of surrender. And so he's thinking, well, okay, where are the guys? The IDF was still planning their attack. Gorin realized something, something that had happened there in Hebron. Back in the summer of 1929, there was a massacre by the Arabs against the Jewish people living in Hebron 67 Jews were massacred and many many others were wounded and Shlomo Goran knew that because he was there when it happened and what he realized in that moment when they pulled into Hebron and all those sheets were flapping in the wind sheets of surrender he looked around and realized the Arabs are fearing a great retaliation so they have surrendered which is exactly what happened Shlomo Gorm was the only IDF soldier in Hebron at the time. He had his driver drive him to the, the uh, traditional site of the cave of Machpelah. And he walked up there, where the Jews have been denied entry for hundreds of years, walked up there with his, his Uzi, and he blasted the doors off the front of it. And then he pulled out his shofar, still the only Jew in Hebron. And he began to blow the shofar again. And the Israelis tell it that Rabbi Shlomo Goran single-handedly captured a city of 80,000 Arabs that day. It's a marvelous story. And finally the IDF caught up with him and they, they took control of the city. God is still prevailing for His people. His people, though persecuted, the enemy will not prevail against me. May all, he says, who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops which withers before it grows up. With which the reaper does not fill his hand or the binder of sheaves his bosom, nor do those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. And listen, this is not just a vengeful prayer of an angry Jew. It's not just someone saying, well, I just hope you get wiped out and that's the way it is. Now, this is the inspired Word of God. And the reality is here, and we need to take note of this, Zion's enemies will not prevail. Zion's people will be preserved. When I hear Christians hate Zion, I am concerned for them. Because... May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. I've said and I know it's I know it's a probably an inflammatory statement. Maybe I'm getting too far out in this. I've said I'm not sure how you can follow Jesus and hate Israel at the same time. I'm not sure how you can be a believer in Jesus Christ and deny the reality of of Israel's place in God's plan. I know there's confusion. I know there's misunderstanding and I know there's 2,000 years of replacement theology. Well, maybe not 2,000. 1,700. 1,700 years of replacement theology that has seeped into the church. I get that. I understand. But I read verses like this. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the housetops which withers before it grows up. And I think, man, we better have a right attitude and a right understanding of Israel as the people of God. You ever wonder why it was that the Lord chose to appear to Moses in a burning bush. That picture is marvelous. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. And so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Why did God appear to Moses before He led the children of Israel into the promised land, out of captivity, why in a burning bush that was not consumed? Hey, I think it's a picture of Israel. The burning bush that was not consumed. A bush that would be persecuted and yet never prevailed against. And it's a marvelous picture to consider. Persecuted but preserved. Burned but not consumed. Now, think about this as we come to the last psalm we're going to do tonight Psalm 130 there's a reason why the Lord required these annual feasts and these festivals these three times up to Jerusalem and it wasn't just to give them an excuse to party and they weren't just called for cultural preservation oh they did both those things happened the Jewish people had marvelous celebrations there and it did serve to preserve the sense of culture for the Jews But the reason God called them up was far greater. He called His people up to Jerusalem to keep before them their sin and His redemption. To constantly remind them of this. So they went up to sacrifice. And sacrifice, you know, is a graphic representation of sin. The blood and the death. It portrays sin. They went up to worship in, in grateful recognition of His grace and His greatness. And they went up to pray in genuine response to His great love for them. And that's what's going on in Psalm 130. This next step along the way ascending to the temple, now we're there. And Psalm 130 is the call to prayer. To pray there in the temple. Up the courtyard, into the very place where the Lord told Israel, I'll meet you there Again, Isaiah 49:16, your walls are continually before me. The Jewish people today continue to pray at the hotel because God said, "I'll meet you there," and that's as close as they can really get to knowing where the temple was. Verse one of Psalm 130: Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. What does verse one and two describe? But prayer. And by the way, these two verses describe, I think, the most beautiful and powerful explanation of what prayer really is. There is nothing of religion in these two verses, there's nothing of liturgy. You know, there's nothing of right words or correct pronunciation, you know. Or the right attitude, or or, or having learned how, or, or enough verses memorized, so that your prayer can be can be lovely and flower. there's nothing there. Out of the depths I have cried to you, Lord. I am crying out of who I am, out of my heart, out of my pain, out of my sorrow, out of my different. I'm just I'm crying out. Lord, hear my voice. I mean, it's abrupt. It, it's almost brash. Lord, hear me. Why should the Lord hear you? You're crying out of the depths. Hear me, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Now, aside from the sacrifice and the worship that went on in these festivals, one of the primary jobs of the priest was the continual burning of incense in the holy place. They would go in there and burn the incense, and while burning the incense, you know this Bible students, it was a picture of prayer. And the priest would light the incense, and as the sweet aroma went up, he prayed for the people. He prayed about the people. Sometimes he would pray about his own situation. I think of Zechariah. John the Baptist's father. Elizabeth, his wife, who was barren. Zechariah in there. Perhaps perhaps while praying for the people, he slipped in a prayer or two for his barren wife. Lord, and by the way, I know we're a little old, but it would be really cool if you give us a son. And then the angel appeared to him and said, hey, you're going to have a son. And he went, are you kidding me? And mute until the child was born. (laughs) I guess God didn't want Zachariah messing things up, going out there going, I don't know if this is a possibility or just just couldn't say a thing. It's quiet. But he's praying. That's what the priest would do. And that's what the incense was about. And John even saw this in heaven in Revelation. Revelation 8 verse 3. An angel came and stood before the altar having a golden censer. And incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Prayer rising up. And here we are at this aspect, Psalm 130, we're in this place now. We've, we've come up to Jerusalem, up to the temple, up into now the holy place. Out of the depths, I cry to you. And Psalm 130 is prayer. Now, what's beautiful about this psalm is the rest of it gives three aspects of the worshiper's prayer verses 1 and 2 again opening up with out of the depths but the rest of the song is prayerful petition listen to this verses 3 and 4 if you Lord should mark iniquities O Lord who could stand but there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared the first aspect of this prayer tearful confession he's crying out of the depths he's facing the reality of his own sin and the reality of sin and forgiveness and we see this all the time in Scripture, this, this sense of confessional prayer. Out of the depths, people crying. Solomon prayed this. Second Chronicles 6.38 he, he cried saying, If they return to you with all their heart, with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been taken captive, and pray toward their land which you have given to their fathers, and the city which you have chosen, and toward the house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven from your dwelling place, their prayer, their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. But the idea of forgiveness is deep and rich in the history of Israel, in the history of God with people, the forgiveness of sin. Solomon prayed now, Oh my God, I pray, let your eyes be open, let your ears be attentive to the prayer offered in this place. He prayed that. That when they're in captivity, if they turn and pray to you, hear them. Daniel did, didn't he? Daniel opened up his windows and turned toward Jerusalem as was his custom and prayed. And in Daniel chapter 9, we hear him saying, verse 18, O God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, O oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. And so Solomon prayed it would happen. Daniel prayed the prayer Solomon hoped would be prayed. And then Nehemiah prays a prayer in fulfillment of this. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6 he prays, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servants. how yeah, they're all saying the same thing. Open up to me, Lord. Open your ears to me. Open your eyes to me. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Nehemiah goes on and he says... I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel which we have sinned against you. I and my Father's house have sinned. Tearful confession. And it begins this marvelous prayer in Psalm 130. There's nothing boring, something nothing mindless, again, nothing religious about prayer. I really think, and I know Les agrees with me on this, if we could get the religion out of our prayer far more of us would pray far more often. And we wouldn't be concerned about praying in front of other people because it's conversation. You know, I have no problem talking to Spencer in front of John. It's not, a, it's not an issue. It's not like, oh, I'd love to say something to Spencer right now, but you know, John's here and he might, he might question my words. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. If we would get the religion out and the fear of saying the wrong thing out and just speak out of the depths of our spirit to the Lord... So we don't say it exactly right. So we stumble. We're talking to our Father. Verse 5 I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in His Word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. Number 2 After cheerful confession follows this watchful expectation. I'm watching, I'm waiting. And note this, the psalmist, possibly David here, says, in His Word do I hope. And I found this to be wonderfully true how the Word of God cultivates hope in us, doesn't it? I can be the most depressed, down, and disturbed and open up the Word and begin in my typical Tuesday morning study. I can open it up and just... it just... hope surges. And exhaustion goes away and worry and fear out the window. The Word cultivates this great hope but he doesn't stop there in his word I do hope he says my soul and the word waits in italics there was added I like it better without the word waits my soul for the Lord (laughs) my soul for the Lord Hey, the word has cultivated generated hope in me now but now now that the word is getting into notice the soul his head he's thinking it through and now suddenly his soul cries out for the Lord I want the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than for watch, watchmen for the morning. And this is watchful expectation. Isaiah 52 verse 8 says, Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Why will the watchmen see before anyone else? Because they're on the wall looking for it. They're the ones waiting for the restoration of Zion. They're the ones whose eyes are open. Isaiah 62, verse 6 On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. Remind the Lord of what? Of His promises. See, part of this watchful waiting for Jesus' return is reminding the Lord that He said He was going to return. And every time you pray that, Lord, I look forward to Your return. Remember, You said You're coming. (laughs) Come soon. Come soon. We long for you, Lord. We want you to come. Reminding the Lord. And those watchmen on the walls in Isaiah 62, I love this line, they will never keep silent. Why? Because they're always praying. The prayer is consistent. It's constant. It is an ongoing thing. Tearful confession, yes, but watchful expectation that should be paramount. It should be what the life of the believer is most known for. It's always praying. Every time I turn around, the guy's praying. It's just weird, man. No, it's not. It's following Jesus. And it's being a watchman on the wall. You who remind the Lord tearful confession, watchful expectation, and finally, hopeful anticipation. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with Him is abundant redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Remember what the angel said to to Joseph in the dream. Matthew 1.21 Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His people. Jesus will save his people. That's Israel first. And, And then second, it's all those who believe in the Lord, the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then... It's all those who come to Him in faith. Gang, it's, it's you and me hopefully anticipating our salvation to come. Tearful confession and watchful expectation and hopeful anticipation. And I would call this, Psalm 130, prevailing prayer. The prevailing prayer. Prayer that prevails, that overcomes, the prayer that begins with confession and recognizes His forgiveness. And a prayer that is watchful and expectant, and a prayer that is hopeful, anticipating the moment when Jesus will return. But for all that, the main point of Psalm 130 is not prayer. It's a prevailing prayer, but prayer in and of itself here is not the point. Well, well what is? There's an old saying that goes like this Pearls lie deep. Pearls lie deep. Uh, I believe it was when we were in Hawaii. I was a kid, ten years old. My family got to go on this trip to Hawaii, and it was great. And and one of the things going on there was they had pearl divers. And they were these ladies that dove way down, deep down, and they would find and bring up, you know, the, the shells, and they'd pop the pearls out, and you could buy pearl necklaces or just one little pearl or whatever. And I remember watching that. Pearls lie deep. The pearl of this psalm is redemption. It's redemption. It's where the psalm ends up. It's where the prayer leads us to that He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. With the Lord there's grace. With the Lord there's abundant redemption. But listen, don't miss this. Had the psalmist not been in the depths, he may not have discovered his redemption. Out of the depths I cry to you, he says. And that pearl of redemption, it lies deep. It it comes from that place. And so often it's the place of deepest pain and heartache and sorrow that redemption is finally discovered. It's when you hit rock bottom, that pearl lies deep and redemption can be found. And I could be wrong about this, but I have a feeling... That when the millennial kingdom finally arrives, that nobody is going to rejoice over the depth of their redemption like the people of Israel who make it through. We will praise God for our grace, and we will praise Him for salvation and for coming to us and for the Spirit who walked us through this life and for being there with Him. We'll praise Him that we were caught up in the rapture. We'll praise Him that we were with Him, protected all that time, that we're back now, we're part of His holy government. Praise to you, Lord. It'll be awesome but the Jewish people. Recognizing redemption in a way that I don't know that we can truly fathom. They will praise Him from a place that is very deep. Out of the depths I have cried to You, Lord. Hear my voice. We'll stop there for tonight. I will say one last thing, and I intimated this as I prayed when we began. If the Psalms of Ascent are all just about going up to Jerusalem, going up to the temple, sacrificing, worshiping, even praying. If they're about doing all these things, but they miss the heart of the whole thing, it's a tragedy. If we come here to worship and to be in the Word and to fellowship together and to pray, and we miss this point, it's a tragedy. That it's all about being with Him. The people could go up to Jerusalem and they could enjoy the festival and they could have a great time and never be with the Lord. And I'm sure it happened all the time. How do you know that, Rick? Because they were human beings like us. And I don't know about you, but I have had years of my life trailing in and out of church and going through all the motions and believing and having faith and doing all the right things and and, and, you know not being outwardly rebellious and yet not being with Him. That's why we do this. That's why we gather. It's to come into the presence of the Lord Himself. To seek Him out. And have fellowship with Him. I want to pray for us and then um, give you a moment tonight to pray. Group up if you'd like to. Pray by yourself if you need to. But just for a moment to consider being with Him. Or perhaps share with someone something in these souls of a sense that's that's really touched you. But let's pause now. I'll pray and and then when I'm done, just quietly get with somebody and spend a few minutes praying and then we'll head out to our homes. Let's bow. Father, we we sang earlier just to be with You. I, I want to be with You. And Lord, You've you've made it clear, that's the reason for ascending. That was the reason of the Psalms of Ascent for Israel, that they might come up and be near You. And when I think about the, the joy and excitement of the rapture of the church, our going up, our ascending, Lord, it's to be with You. I hear Your words, Jesus, and they thrill me. That where I am, there you may be also. Lord, to be with you, in your presence, aware of you, and listening to your voice, and worshiping you. That is the deepest desire of our hearts. And so I invite you, I ask you, Lord, to meet us in that place tonight. As we pray out of the depths, in, in reality and, and in truth and honesty, Father, continue to strip away all the trappings, the religiosity, and allow us to learn what it means to just be a people who walk with their Lord. In Jesus we pray. And we continue to pray. Amen.